Well, good morning to you guys. Uh, if you don't know me, uh, my name is Trey Corey. I'm the campus pastor here this morning and getting to fill in for Blake uh, this summer for you guys. And so grateful to get to be with you guys this particular morning. To all of you dads out there, let me just again say happy Father's Day to y'all. Uh, as a dad, I can just say that I think that our existence and our life experience is one of the most unique. Uh, on, some hand, uh, on one hand, I feel like we have some of the highest of highs. And on other days, I feel like we have some of the lowest of lows. On the highs, I feel like there's nothing like those moments where we sometimes have the opportunity to teach our kid a new skill, like riding a bike, catching a ball, throwing a ball, and then have them actually say to us, thank you. Or, or to have those moments in life where they accomplish something great, and then they look back over their shoulder just to see if we're noticing and if we're watching. There's that profound sense of their desire for our approval, and it's such a joy to get to grant it, get to show of affirmation and love. But also, I'd say as a dad, there are often so many lows and so many moments where the kids are rolling their eyes or they're sighing at us or they are saying, Dad, can you just stop it? Even though we are on an unprecedented roll of dad joke after dad joke after dad joke. And so maybe it's just my home and maybe it's just my sense of humor, but there is often a repeated refrain in our home in which our kids say to me, Dad, just stop it feels so unappreciated. Uh, in fact, I was thinking, and I ran across this week an old uh, deal that Jimmy Fallon did on The Tonight Show in which he, on a Father's Day a few years ago, asked for audience members to tweet in their own stories in which they told their dads, stop it. And so this is a series of stories in which sons and daughters wrote in saying the moments that they made, their dads made them go, stop it, please. These are hilarious. Here's a few examples. One was this. When I was younger, whenever my dad ate corn on the cob, he'd act like a typewriter and go, ding, <laughs> at the end of each row. I think that's fantastic. Or how about this one? For five years, my dad drove me past a hay field to school, and every day for five years, he pointed and said, hey, and laughed. I think the thing I appreciate more than just the corny dad joke is the commitment every day. For five years, he did this, right? Or how about this one? Whenever my dad goes into a fitting room, he always yells, there's no toilet paper in here. <laughs> Can you imagine being a daughter who's a teenager and your dad's over there? Oh my gosh. How about this one? Airport security asked my dad if he had a bomb and he goes, like I'd tell you if I had a bomb. There are moments that seem so funny in our heads, and they just don't seem to translate. Last but not least, and this is my favorite, my dad walked up to the shirtless greeter at Abercrombie and Fitch and said, hey, your shift is over, I'll take it from here. <laughs> I've read that four times this week, and it still gets me, probably, all right? I could totally see myself doing that and thinking it's hilarious, right? And so I don't know about you, but as I think about us dads, if we're um, op honest and open with you, and maybe it's really no secret, but I think there's something profoundly deep in us that frankly enjoys watching our kids squirm and saying, dad, stop it, right? I think there's something about us dads that frankly, we, there's a reason why we have an unparalleled, we are an unparalleled author of one dad joke after another. There's something in us dads that has no problem putting our dad bod on display with no qualms or equivocations, Right? There's something about us dads that really, frankly, has no problem with the fact that we haven't bought a new item of clothing in the last 20 years since our kids were born, right? Why? What is it about us dads? Why is it that we do these things? I think ultimately it's this. I think for many of us dads, we simply just don't care anymore, right? 
we really at some point hit a point in life where we don't have the same sense of caring as to what other people think of us anymore. So we'll embarrass our kids. We'll put our dad bod on display. We'll um, roll out one dad joke after another. And we really, frankly, don't care. Frankly, I think as we think about it, I think there's something that dads have hit in life in which they're no longer chasing the approval of man or others. And there's a peace and there's a freedom in it, which is why some of our spouses and our kids cringe because we're not trying anymore, right? We are just letting ourselves be who we are. Here we are, right? Ultimately, what I want to do this morning is we look at passage in Acts chapter 14, as we look at Paul and Barnabas, who were in a sense were the early church fathers in these missionary journeys that will unfold in the book of Acts, is I think they're going to show us as apostles of the fathers of the early church, they're going to show us what it'll look like to have the highest of highs and the lowest of lows in terms of the court of public opinion. That in some moments, people are going to think that they are celebrities and they're going to loft them high. And at other moments, they're going to absolutely reject them and try to stone them. Like a dad, in a sense, they're going to vacillate between these highs and these lows. And I think what their example, particularly for us in Acts 14, will show us is how do we respond to the highs of the approval of men and women? And how do we respond to the lows when we're rejected and others turn away from us? How do we respond in either of those places? Because I think the apostles will do it exceedingly well. Acts 14, we're going to pick it up in verse 8, when I think what we're going to see is a trap that's going to be set, a trap of approval. Notice chapter 14, verse 8. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. And this man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith me made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and he began to walk. As our passage opens in Acts chapter 14, at this point in their missionary journeys, for Paul and Barnabas, the impossible will become possible. And the trap of approval gets set as to how are they going to respond to the crowds who have seen this miraculous moment at their hands. What will they do? It's going to be fascinating as we see what the crowd does. We're going to see that the, che- the cheese of approval gets placed in the trap. Notice verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men, and they've come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. If I was Paul, I think I would have preferred Zeus, but that's neither here nor there. Verse 13, the priests of Zeus, whose temple was just outside of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and they wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. The cheese of approval gets placed in the trap here for these men, Paul and Barnabas. They're going to do a miracle in verses 8 to 11, and then the crowds are going to respond, claiming that they are gods, and they're going to want to worship them. And the question becomes, how do Paul and Barnabas will respond? It's interesting to me as I think about this story, one of the things that fascinates me is that Paul and Barnabas show up as strangers in this city. They do one thing, and all of a sudden they're revered as gods. This is immediate worship. It's fascinating to me as I think about it. It's really impulsive worship. I think about often so many moments in my own life or as I've watched in social situations or culture, whenever we worship impulsively, we often worship idiotically. For whatever reason, a couple scenes came in my head this week. One was of the Return of the Jedi movie as the Ewoks loft C-3PO and they worship him as a god, right? It's an impulsive worship moment that was one that was also idiotic. For all of us dads and young families in the room, I often think of the movie Madagascar. Uh, some, someone once said that the key to being a young family with young kids is that you go from watching 50 movies one time to watching the same movie 50 times, right? 
you're laughing because you know. Uh, and for whatever reason, with the, with the movies of Madagascar, I've always loved King Julian. He's like my favorite character, right? He's lofted into worship as the king. All hail him, all uh, empower him. And he rejoices and exults in the authority and the claim and the fame. And he's just the last person you should have put in power, right? He's an idiot, okay? Uh, and yet the crowds will loft him, they'll re- re- place him into power, and he will revel and he will rejoice in it. Which is why, really, to me, the point of Acts 14 and what we're going to see is really not uh, 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 focus in, focus on uh, the crowds and whether they are going to be idolatrous or not. It's going to be on what people do when acclaim comes to them. How do people respond? King Julian will exult in it. And if you know the story of Acts and know the flow of the story a little bit, it's fascinating. If you look back just two chapters earlier at a story that unfolds in Acts chapter 12 about King Herod. Notice it. Let's pick it up in verse 21. This is going to be two chapters earlier, and it's going to be a breadcrumb in our story that you have to grasp to understand what's happening in Acts 14. Notice Acts chapter 12, verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod, King Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. What will Herod do? He will take the cheese and the trap will close in on him. And notice what happens in verse 23. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. (laughs) I don't know how you want to go out. I don't think this is it, right? This is horrible, all right? They loft him as a God. He revels in their worship, and God kills him on the spot one verse later, and he's eaten by worms, right? The point is, be very, very careful if you grab the cheese of approval because it will go moldy, and it can destroy you. It's interesting as you think more about this story in Acts 14 is that you have this example of King Herod just two chapters earlier that I think sets up this tension in the story because again, I think it's not about the crowds, but it's about how the receivers of the crowd's applause will respond. What will Paul and Barnabas do? There's going to be a few different circumstances leading up to our passage in Acts 14 that I think are helpful that I think frankly make this moment have even more tension because notice circumstantially what's happened to them. I want to take it into uh, chapter uh, 13, pick it up in verse 48, noticing what happens to Paul and Barnabas on these missionary journeys. Chapter 13, verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, their preaching, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. And so you have this moment in which, man, people are responding. It's great. But notice what happens in just one verse later in verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city, and they instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them, and they went to Iconium. Pick it up again in verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 5. Now they're in a new city. Notice what happens. Uh, and when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they became aware of it, and they fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. So two chapters earlier, King Herod's going to have uh, applause and acclaim, and he's going to be exalted as if he were a god and had the voice of a god, and he will take the cheese and the trap will close on him, and God will kill him on the spot. As we get to the story with Paul and Barnabas in chapter 14, what we see is that they're going to have circumstantially having, have already navigated through some really difficult moments such that when they're lofted and they're exalted, it would have been really, really tempting to grab the cheese because it would have felt really good. It would have been felt really good 
to be encouraged, to be valued, to be appreciated. But what are they going to do? I want you to notice not just the crowd's response, but I want you to notice Paul and Barnabas' response as we pick it up in verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and they rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and we preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Man, their response could not be more different than King Herod, right? In the midst of that moment, as the tension comes on them as to what were they going to do, it's so, it would have been so easy to grab the cheese. It would have been so easy to let that wash over them and to feel good, to feel appreciated. And they say, no, no. They absolutely recognize what this is about. This is primarily not only about the crowds and what they're worshiping, but it's also about their response and what it says about them and what they're looking for and what they're needing. Man, I, I don't care what age we are at. I don't care even what stage of fatherhood we're at. Every single one of us longs for the approval of men and women. Every single one of us longs for the approval of others. That someone would say that we're valuable, that we're worthwhile, that we're doing a good job. Every single one of us is wired to need that and desire that, to be encouraged by that. But in this moment, Paul and Barnabas recognize that the acclaim and the fame that's being extended is idolatry. That's not even accurate, and so they're going to back away from it. And so I want you to see not just what they do, but ultimately I want to slow down and I want to examine, I think, why they do it. I think the apostles recognize when it comes to it, chasing for the approval of men and women and their opinion about us, there's three things that you and I have to grasp about hype about acclaim and about fame. And the first is this. As we think about why they responded the way they did, I think the first is this, that hype is always inflated. That acclaim and fame often isn't true at all. One of my favorite stories uh, comes from a famous preacher who must have felt really good about his sermon one Sunday morning as he was driving home. And he said to his wife, he said, Hey, honey, how many truly great preachers do you think there are in the world today? And his spouse said to him, his wife said to him, I think there's probably one less than you think there are today. (laughs) There's something about spouses that have the unique ability to write in the midst of our soul, speak truth and say, I don't think you're as great as you think you are. If it's not spouses, it's often coaches. Uh, One of my favorite uh, quotes is always from Bill Parcells, former NFL coach of the Giants and the Cowboys, uh, who used to say this about flattery and the praise of others to his players. Sometimes when everybody's feeding you the cheese, it's hard to not eat it. But don't eat the cheese. You're never as good as people say you are. Always strive to improve yourself. Ignore other opinions, press or TV, agents or advisors, family or wives, friends or relatives, fans or hanger-ons. Ignore them on matters of football. They don't know what's happening here. I think so often when worship, fame, and claim come at us, it's often inflated and it's not accurate. We're never as great as we think we are on our best days. We're also never as bad as we think we are on our worst days, right? I think for so many of us that so desperately long for approval, that are so insecure, needing the approval of someone else to say that we have value, that we have honor, we get coaxed into the lie and we don't realize that hype, acclaim, approval of others is inflated because it's often just not true. Which is why as the apostles respond, as Paul and Barnabas respond in this moment, they respond to the error that exists. Which is why they say, we are men of the same nature of you. They bring it right back down to what is an accurate assessment as to who they are. I think they were able to do it for a few reasons. One is I think they weren't profoundly insecure. 
They weren't profoundly looking and craving and desperately in search of someone to tell that they were valuable because they knew that God, Jesus Christ, had died on a cross for them. They knew that they were valuable in the eyes of the creator God himself, so they didn't need man, they didn't need accomplishment, they didn't need someone else to attest to their value. And so when a false hype comes, they can turn it away and say, it's not true. I'm a man just like you. I'm no different. I put my pants on one leg at a time, right? Maybe not in their culture. Maybe they had yogas. I don't know. Togas, right? Um, But as I think about it, really, I I, I think they recognized that it wasn't true. That the second thing I think they recognized that hype was also incidental. That often when fame acclaim comes, it's often not even about us at all. It actually says often more about the people that are offering it than it says about us who are trying, who are having an opportunity to receive it or not. That hype is often incidental. I want you to think for imagine for a moment an individual who wins the lottery and all of a sudden has all kinds of acclaim and fame and notoriety because he won the lottery. And imagine if he had some kind of condescension to the rest of us in arrogance, as if he was better than us, right? Every one of us would go, that is absolutely ridiculous, right? You didn't do anything to merit or to earn that new acclaim, fame, and wealth. It's really actually not about you, but it's about the wealth that was given to you, which is why you now have acclaim and fame. Hype is always incidental. It's really ever, never actually about us at all. It's always about something else. That's why I love what the apostles do here. Paul and Barnabas, they don't just correct that which was erroneous, but notice what they do as well. Yes, they say, men, why are you doing these things? We are men of the same nature as you. Let me correct the error, but notice what they do next. This is why we preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. They're going to redirect the hype to a creator God who's living and who's personal. He's not just personal. Notice what else he says. He's him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, that he is a providing God. Verse 16, in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. He's a patient God. And then lastly, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and he gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness that he's a satisfying God. That they are going to redirect the hype, the acclaim, and the fame to who is ultimately truly worthwhile and worthy of it, to the creator God himself. It's really why I think as we think about hype, we think about acclaim, the approval of others, that we are so desperately inclined to chase at times that often when it comes, insecurity always makes it about us. That in those moments where you and I actually do encounter and have the opportunity to experience hype or claim or fame or approval, insecurity always takes it and redirects it and makes it about us. Settling a question that we have about ourselves as to whether we really have value and worth or not. But humility does something different. That when you and I can walk in humility and when humility has been established, it always makes it about him. Because insecurity doesn't rob and redirect it and uh, hijack it as to where it's supposed to go. That humility always makes it about him. And I think when we think about humility, I think it's developed and it's defined in a surprising way. For many of us, I think when we think about humility, we think, I just need to realize how poor and pitiful I am. That's called self-pity. That's not the same as humility. Or we think it's about self-criticality, that we have awareness of all of our weaknesses, all of our errors, and all of our issues. That humility is not developed, it's not established, it's not grown on the bedrock of self-criticality or self-pity. It's always grown in the bedrock of an understanding and a profound sense of the glory of God. Humility is grown and established not as we look down on ourselves, but as we look up at the Creator God, recognizing His majesty and His glory. And that's what establishes humility. It's also what wipes out insecurity. We realize that that creator God so valued us that he came for us. 
that we're not looking for the approval of others, we realize this creator God came for us. Insecurity always hijacks fame and acclaim and makes it about us. Humility, as it's established, always is able to redirect it to the creator God himself. I love Andrew Peterson in his book, Humility. He says this, Nothing is more natural and beautiful and blessed than to be nothing, so that God may be all. It is not sin that humbles most, but grace. And that is the soul led through its sinfulness to be occupied with God and his wonderful glory as creator and redeemer that will truly take the lowest place before him. We bend low as we look up. We don't bend low and stay low as we look down on ourselves. We get a proper understanding of our identity and our being made in the image of God as we look up at our creator God who has created us, redeemed us, and pursued us for all of eternity. That you and I have an opportunity in the midst of the pursuit of fame, approval, that when it does come, you and I have the opportunity to recognize through, without pain and without difficulty, how we ought to respond. But sometimes we don't respond as we ought. We receive it, we take it, and then the last thing that we recognize through the school of hard knocks is that often hype is only for an instant, right? It's only for an instant. Notice what happens in verse 18. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrain the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. I'm laughing, but it's not funny. I'm laughing, though, at how quickly the opinion of the crowds change, right? We have them being offered and worshipped and being restrained and still worshipping Paul and Barnabas, and then one verse later, they're being stoned and left for dead. That hype, it only lasts for an instant, it doesn't last long at all. And sometimes when we chase it and we receive it, the school of hard knocks teaches us as it leaves and it departs. It actually wasn't accurate. It wasn't about us and it doesn't last long. So be careful as you chase it. Be careful as you pursue it. Be careful as you need it. I don't want to compare necessarily the Apostle Paul to the former president, George Bush, but I love this quote. As someone asked him in one of his books, a book called Decision Points, they said, an interview asked him, when you left office, President Bush, your popularity numbers were around 30%, give or take, depending on the poll. Did it bother you? Imagine your occupation as one that your polls that are done every single week as to how well you're doing. Would you pay attention? Here's what Bush said. No, because I also was, as you just mentioned, at one time over 90%. I didn't take it seriously then when I was at 90, and I didn't take it seriously when I left office when I was at 30. Somebody walked up to me the other day and said, congratulations, your popularity is way up since you left office. (laughs) That must have felt great, right? And my answer was, so what? Seriously. I mean, if you chase popularity, you're chasing a moment, you're chasing a poof of air. The approval of man and woman is absolutely often a poof of air. Comes and it leaves in a second. And when it comes, it's not about you and it's often not even accurate. So why are we so desperate to chase it and why are we so desperate to need it? I think insecurity drives that for a lot of us. I think we are so desperate for, for the chase of it and for what it says to us and how it values us. And yet we have a creator God who said you're infinitely valuable. So why does it matter what others are saying? Why are you so desperate to hear their approval? Why are you so desperate for their affection? Why are you so desperate for their opinion of you to be high? I love how Paul and Barnabas ultimately respond, and I think it brings us to the point. Notice verse 20. After they had been stoned and dragged and left for dead, verse 20, but while the disciples stood around them, he got up and he entered the city. And the next day he went away uh, with Barnabas to Derbe, and after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. 
strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. But when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they have believed. Here's what I love about this story. Here's what I love about how the story ends with Paul and Barnabas. When the opinions were high, they stayed the same. When the opinions were low, they stayed the same. They weren't chasing the approval of man. They just stayed faithful over time to the mission, the call that God had given them, and the rest was white noise. And yet, we're like a ping pong ball sometimes, right? Just bouncing around between the highs and the lows, and there's not a steadiness and a faithfulness to block out the noise and to walk with the Lord and to be attentive to his voice and his approval as if it's the only voice that matters. What does it look like for you to walk with faithfulness to the call that he has in your life? Wherever you work, wherever you live, wherever you are, whatever platform and venue that he's given you, what does it look like for you to be faithful, blocking out the noise of approval, whatever your life stage is, wherever you find yourselves, wherever the Lord has you right now? What does it look like to not chase the ping pong ball that it makes us into of approval? To not go after the cheese of approval? To not need it, to not pursue it, to not chase it, to not rise when we get it, to not crash when we lose it. But to remain faithful, blocking out the noise and just walking with the Lord, trusting that his voice of approval is enough. That we can remain faithful to the mission, faithful to the call, faithful to what he has for us. Not what he has for someone else, but what he has for us. What we're going to do this morning as we wrap up is we're going to have an opportunity to hear this and I think see it displayed and lived out in a really beautiful way. Uh, Tracy Toon, our managing director of global outreach here at Southwood and at, for Grace Bible Church, is helping bring strategic focus and training to our ability to send and mobilize to the nations. Is going to come up, and we have an opportunity to hear from one of our local missionaries. And if you are one of those that often uh, loves to record or is live tweeting or live Facebook videoing our messages and our sermons, we'd ask if you could simply turn those off at this juncture, just because uh, there's some sensitivity as to identity.